Lord and our Savior, only provided to us in Luke's Gospel account. And so we're going to turn there now and talk about the parable of the barren fig tree. Uh, thank you to, to Kent for getting our minds ready to go when it comes to talking about this agricultural metaphor that we have here. Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. Let's take a look at what our Lord teaches here. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, the vine dresser, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. This parable seems to come after some important verses found in Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. In fact, verse 3 is an oft-quoted verse in that grouping. Um, and I'd like to, to start by asking our panel, let's, let's pave the way, prepare the way for the parable by examining the context, what comes before it. And so, uh, gentlemen, I'll, I'll start over here with Ben. What stands out to you about the context in verses 1 through 5? that would help us maybe understand the parable better? A absolutely. So I, I feel like a broken record because I feel like this is my continual, every time we have a discussion, I come back to this. Uh, but I think Jesus comes back to it a lot in the sense of it seems very much like he's trying to indicate to these individuals that, hey, understand that the eternal is way more significant than the physical. Um, I think it's very interesting because this is a discussion where in this moment, uh, they're having this discussion about, can you believe that this happened in the world? And then Jesus is going to say, do you think that their fate is worse? Do you, what do you think, you know, do you think uh, that they were worse sinners because they died in this way? But not, if you don't repent, we're all going to likewise perish, that verse that you mentioned. Uh, but then he's going to, to uh, mention another world event. And he's going to bring up, hey, there were 18 who died in a tower collapse. Do you think that their fate is worse than the one who doesn't repent? And as I sit here and, and process this, I, I almost feel like Jesus is trying to indicate to these people, like, hey, you know what? These fates seem terrible. And we could look at horrible fates of, of, of this world uh, that, that we would look at and say, whoa, the death of those people is so sad. And, and we, it definitely is sad. But Jesus is trying to indicate, look, although some of these things seem so heart-wrenching and so sad and it breaks our heart, uh, it sure seems to me like he's looking at this and saying, man, you know what else? You want to know what's even more heart-wrenching? When somebody is not willing to repent from their sins and trying to really pack them into this like broader scheme of look at the spiritual, not just the physical pain. Of earth. That's what I really pick up from those, from those five verses. So but. it seems to be paving the way for a talk maybe about spiritual death that we yes. kind of look at in those verses. Uh, Kyle, what stands out to you? Well, what's so very interesting is if you go even further back to the previous chapter, the, the chapter 12 is all about readiness. And, and there's this, this, uh, these instructions about not worrying, not being anxious, and to, and to being ready. And there's even 
some of the messages leading up to the start of chapter 13 are, are geared around that. And then we get to these two uh, scenarios, uh, these two real-world scenarios that are kind of happening in real time of situations where people have perished, and Jesus takes those to set up this idea of being ready. And, and readiness is tied to repentance. What I find really interesting is that if you journey even further back in, in the book of Luke, is that the, the overarching message prior to Christ was repent and bear fruit. You go back to the ministry of John the Baptist, Luke chapter uh, 3, and John's going to say uh, this. He's going to say, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now that's after, and I, I skipped this verse, Luke chapter 3 and verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's as though Jesus is tying all this together. Okay, readiness is the key because the eternal is way more important. And here's how you get ready. It's through repentance. And the way repentance is evidenced is through bearing fruit. And, and as you're weaving this thread through everything that's happening in chapter 12 through the start of chapter 13, you can see that there's this connection back to the very original message of, the, of this gospel to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So it's a very interesting how, how Luke has tied all this together as he's packaging this, this unique parable for us. So bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Mingu, anything stand out to you? Um, yeah, I agree that, you know, Jesus is talking uh, about repentance. And, and especially, I, I believe, I think uh, Jesus is calling people to repentance. And I think Jesus is also reminding the disciples uh, to repent for themselves and also uh, reminding them of the importance of significance of repentance. Uh, probably uh, the disciples in Jesus' time, because they didn't know yet the whole scheme of salvation, they didn't understand it, uh, probably they, did, they were uh, still viewing the physical death as the most extreme disaster that a man can have. But Jesus is saying that no, there is much, much severe, I mean, you know, more uh, disastrous death, and it is the spiritual death, like Ben said, you know, unless you repent, you will die in that death, in the spiritual death. So I think Jesus is warning uh, the disciples and also us to repent, and that is the context that Jesus is. And, and so I, I, th I would encourage everybody as we go through the study, it, we don't want to be like those who looked outward and said, hey, did you hear about the horrible thing that happened to them? They must be awful sinners. I think that Jesus wants us to direct our attention inwardly. And so as we go to these questions, don't be like them and think about the person sitting on the same pew as you or that person not here tonight and how they're guilty of such and such. Let's all look inwardly as we move forward. In, in an effort to streamline this discussion, uh, we came to a general consensus and agreement about the symbols that we find in the parable. Um, these may not be exact and precise when it comes to what these things represent. Um, but as we look at the parable of the barren fig tree, uh, we're going to kind of, again, to help this conversation to kind of be streamlined a bit, we're going to assume these things. 
that these are close to, if not the representations meant. First is that the fig tree in this parable represents the unrepentant Jews, and we can kind of take that on ourselves and think about any of us, including ourselves, that are in need of repentance. That the fruit is, as Kyle mentioned, according to the preaching of John the Baptist, works in keeping with repentance. That the owner of the vineyard uh, most likely represents Father God. That the vine dresser uh, perhaps represents Jesus himself or another blessed with his spirit, perhaps a prophet speaking by the spirit of Jesus Christ. Uh, and then the vineyard uh, we might think of as being in the grace and favor of God. Uh, and so we'll kind of keep those in our minds, those symbols, and run with those as we kind of continue. And, and so, Kyle, with that in mind, one of the things that was just interesting to me, if this is really true, if the, the owner is Father God, the vine dresser, a representation of Jesus, then do we learn anything about how two parts of the Godhead interact with each other from this parable, or maybe their relationship? Well, what stands out to me is the fact that Jesus, as the vine dresser, is concerned about the interests of God as the owner. He has this, they have the same objective in mind. It's, it's the vine dresser here, represent, who is, we're identifying as representative of, of Jesus, who is, is, is focused on fruit production to the same degree that the owner is, and is willing to take extra measures to help accomplish that end. So in, 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 in this scenario, in this parable, as we look at, at the a relationship between the vine dresser and the owner, you have them on the same page. And I started thinking about Luke's gospel in this regard. At the start of Luke's gospel, you have a child, Jesus, 12 years old, at the temple saying, I must be about my father's business. In Luke chapter 22, at the end of the gospel, or toward the end of the gospel, you have a, 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 a soon-to-be martyred Jesus praying in the garden and saying, not my will, but yours be done. Throughout the entirety of his life, Jesus' objective was to accomplish the will of his Father. And here you have, have God, represented by this owner, saying, okay, there's not been any fruit, it's time to cut this down. And then you have Jesus, the vine dresser, saying, wait a second, let's give it another chance. Let's cultivate it, let's work on it. I really want this to produce fruit, in a sense. So you have, you have the vine dresser and the owner working towards the same objective with the same uh, agenda. And, and really, the, the, the son is just trying to advance the will of the father here. That's what I see. Really, really, really good point. Uh, Mingu, what would you add? Yeah, um, I mean, maybe I'm saying the same thing, but uh, God is the judge and Christ, the vine dresser, uh, is the advocate for sinners, and he is pleading for sinners here to God. And God, is, this is very amazing thing. God listens to the vine dresser, and he, uh, God gives the, another year uh, as the opportunity for repentance. So uh, like Harp pointed out that, you know, they have the same objective uh, to save all people. So. Uh, they are co-op cooperating, but their role is a little bit different. And, the, you know, it is a, a amazing grace that we have 
the vine dresser, Jesus Christ, on our side to plead for us that we have more opportunity to repent. Advocate, intercessor, would you add anything to that? Uh, no, not very much. I think those guys just knocked out of the park. I, I think one thing that stuck out to me as I was going through this and like reprocessing it was just how beautiful it is that the Father and the Son work together for the vine. You know, like in, in the entire instance, there's, there's a, um, and, and Kyle, you were talking a lot about, about they have the common goal, but I think it's really beautiful how the vine is the true benefit, like is also a huge benefiter here. Like, like hey, if this bad plant gets torn out, well, a healthy vine takes its place. And, and just this, this really gorgeous cycle of making sure that what the vineyard is, is just ultimately healthy. Uh, and, and that's a beautiful thing. When you let the Father and Son do their work amongst us, I think that you just see full health among Christians and among God's people. And that, that really just popped to me. Uh, it was really beautiful. So good thoughts, everybody. Mingu mentioned grace, and that to me is just something that pops in this parable, is uh, the amazing grace of our God. And, and so, Mingu, I'd like to start with you, if, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, is there something in this parable that really stands out to you that, that says God is a gracious God, or maybe just something in all of Scripture that is worth pointing out, you think, when you think of God's grace? I want to give God's grace a few minutes here. So, Mingu, what do you think? Okay. Um, you know, we think grace uh, could be something that we something that we really want to have, but we have it. God's grace. I, I mean, uh, the uh, best expression of God's grace to human beings, to every one of us, to all people, is his patience. That we have opportunity to repent. We sin. We fall. We make mistakes. And, but God doesn't judge us right away but he gives us the opportunity to correct, to repent, and to come back to him. And that is the most important, I mean, most uh, amazing, I mean, gracious thing that I think about uh, God's grace. Here, as the vine dresser, you know, plead for God, plead to God uh, to give one more ear to the, you know, tree, and he allows it. And that is the expression of God's grace. I mean, God's grace is given to the tree, and that's amazing. And Romans chapter 2, verse 4 um, points it out that, you know, we should not regard the uh, lacking of judgment on earth as something that God is not there. I mean, God. It's not that God is not powerful to judge us, to punish us. No. God's endurance and patience means God's grace, God's mercy. So we have to, uh, very, uh, we have to be aware of that always. And as we have the time, you know, we also have the grace of God. We have, because we have the opportunity to uh, repent. That's, that's a great verse. So Romans 2, 4, again. For do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's a great verse that I think goes right along with this parable. Ben, uh, God's grace. Absolutely, man. I, I, um, you know, you, you kind of casually read scripture a lot in life, and I don't know that I'd really ever sat down and, and processed this passage as a, uh, in, in a deeper sense. And, and I will say that when I read this to study it, it was kind of like a flooring concept. I, I love, I love in the passage, I'm going to read it again, when he, when he sat there and said uh, in verse 7, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit in this fig tree, and I have found none. And I, the, the beauty of him walking into the, the garden and look at it in the first year and saying, hmm, interesting, no fruit, we'll leave it be. And then the next year, walking into the garden and saying, uh, hmm, no fruit. And then finally the third year, walking in and saying, why should we have this? And then still getting an extra year. It's, it's just a mind-blowing experience. We talked about it last time of how you have the vine dresser begging as an intermediary for us in that moment, connecting us, allowing us to have that fellowship together. Um, I, I thought this was beautiful. God the Father expects, based on this parable, expects fruit bearers in his kingdom. That's very clear. The statement is obvious. But it's difficult for me to read this passage and not just kind of get blown away and say, wow. God is way more patient, and this is what stood out to me. He's way more patient than I'm comfortable with. Like, as, as somebody who wants the kingdom to succeed and wants the kingdom to thrive, three years <laughs> and then adding a fourth is r a ridiculously long time. To sit there and say, okay, you know, you can sit there, and, and, and anything that happens, if something takes longer than sometimes, like, an hour, we're like, this is horrible. Um, I think about like whenever I try to build the furniture that you order that comes disassembled, you know, it should take 15 minutes because it's just the parts where you like pop it together and it makes all the sense, but it always takes longer and that is so frustrating. And I sit here and I look at this and I say, okay, the frustration to sit there and when I watch things and when I take a step back and look at the church and I, I see different areas where where fruit is not being produced, and it's just so frustrating. And I sit there and think, why is this not being handled immediately? You know, why are we not handling this within two days? Why are we not handling it in day one? And the fact that the that the uh, that the owner of the vineyard and the vine dresser are willing to wait and prune and work with over a very intentionally stated four-year period. Uh, it's so beautiful to me. Um, and the grace that is offered through that time is, is just stunning. And you, you know, you said something there. You said God is way more patient than, than I would be, essentially, is what you're referring to. And that's, that's the attitude of Jonah. That's the mindset of Jonah. Jonah goes to Nineveh, yeah. and, he, or, and he doesn't want to be there. He's done everything possible to avoid going there, all because he knows God is gracious, <laughs> all because he knows what God's going to do. Jonah knows God well enough to know that God's going to be gracious to these people, and Jonah doesn't want to help that. Don't, Jonah doesn't want to contribute to that. Um, and then you, you can journey throughout Scripture, and you can just constantly see God's grace in the form of patience. Because that's what stood out to me, too, is, is, is this idea of patience. It actually made me think of 2 Peter chapter 3, another great passage on the subject, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Again, highlighting this connection between God's salvation and his patience, which is, brought, which is the result of his grace. Now, you think about Scripture and these times where people are ready for God to move. You can go to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, I believe it is. The souls under the altar are crying out, How long, how long is Rome going to get away with this? How long are our persecutors going to be allowed to thrive? How long, how long? Just a little bit longer. Here's your cloak. Just a little bit longer. God is, is, is consistently willing to put up with more than we are. Just look at the nation of Israel. If you were in God's position during the wilderness wanderings, how long would it have taken you to just wipe them out? I mean, so, as parents, you go on a long trip, you got kids in the back seat, and they start complaining about, when will we get there? And how much longer will it be? And I'm bored. And I'm hungry. And I've got to use the bathroom. That is exactly what the children of Israel sounded like for 40 years. For 40 years. I'm hungry. Here's some manna. It'll show up every morning on your doorstep. You don't even have to go hunt it. You don't have to do anything. It'll just be there. All right, thank you, God. Hey, God, I'm tired of this manna. Can I get something else? All right, I'll, I'll make quail just fall out of the sky every evening. You'll be good. All right, thank you, Lord. Hey, hey, God, we're thirsty. God, we need something to drink. All right, there's a rock over there. We'll make some water come out of it. Every time something comes up, there's a new complaint. And God put up with that for 40 years. Never once giving up on them. It's beautiful. The other thing I want to I bring out in regards to God's grace here is we have an agricultural parable happening. When you think about agricultural parables, this isn't the number one that comes on the list. The number one is going to be the parable of the soils. And when you think about the parable of the soils, basically it goes like this. There's rocky soil over here. Seeds got tossed on it. Eh, grow a little bit. It dies off. There's thorny soil over here. Seeds get tossed on it. It starts to grow. It dies off. There's a, a hardened soil. The path over here. Seeds get tossed on it. Nothing really happens. And there's good soil over here. And seed falls on it. It grows great. Not, in not one instance does the soil get cultivated. Does the soil get prepped? Does the soil get nourished and, and readied to receive the seed? It's just seed throwing, landing where it will. In this instance, in the parable of the fig tree, as, we're try, as Jesus is giving us a view of, of how gracious our God is, he's saying, look, God's giving time, and God, via me, his son, is putting in the extra effort to get it ready. We're not just going to settle for the seed falling where it falls, we're actually going to try to cultivate it and help it grow. God's grace is viewed here in terms of his patience, but I think we can also view it in terms of his partnership with us and trying to help us 
become what he intends and wants for us to be. So I think there's something beautiful in that aspect of it as well. Ben, were you wanting to add something in? Okay. Uh, one, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, another, another way that I saw God shows us his grace is that he listens to us. Now, as we plead to God for somebody, please give some more time for the person or for us to repent. Then he listens to us. He ret God retracts his wrath on the plea of his people. You know, we have some biblical you know, examples like Moses plead to God to forgive the people, Israelites, who worshiped golden calf. You know, and also, um, um, you know, Abraham pleaded to God to uh, not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there are at least 10 righteous people. And God, yeah, I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. I will, I will not destroy the, uh, the place if there are at least 10 righteous people. But there were only four righteous people. So, you know, I like uh, how Craig interpreted the uh, kind of symbol, the vine dresser. He didn't see vine dress not only as Jesus, but also somebody who has the Holy Spirit. We can be the vine dresser. We can, we can plead for people. We can mediate between God and people so that God give them some more, you know, opportunity to repent. So uh, it stands out to me, uh, John chapter 15, verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 16 says that, you know, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I choose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So if we pray to God to give some more time, some more opportunity for people to repent, I think Jesus is saying that God will listen to you and he will give some more time. I want to jump in with one more thing. Thinking back to the one occasion where it's easy for us to go, oh, God didn't have grace there. It would be the flood. If you think back to, to Genesis 6 when God said, all right, I'm going to wipe everything out and start over, that's the one time you might go, okay, not a lot of grace there. But if you look at how old Noah was when the story starts, at the end of chapter 5 of Genesis, he's 500 years old. When he enters the ark, construction is complete, and God says, all right, get inside, and I'm going to close the door, He's 600 years old. Now that does not necessarily mean that Noah was building an ark for 100 years, but that's a possibility at the very least. And I want you to think, considering the size of that ark and the number of animals that had to be collected and despite God's divine involvement, it's going to take some significant time. 100 years. Up, let's say it this way, up to a hundred years between the time that Noah is instructed to start constructing the ark and he completes the ark. Up to a hundred years. 
That's a pretty gracious amount of time. And when you consider the reference to Noah in the New Testament as a, a preacher, per se, his activity is communicating to the world around him that there's someone to answer to, that there's someone who's going to judge the world. There is a message being proclaimed to repent, and God's giving all that time before the rainfall for people to come to the realization that something needs to change. So even in his most ungracious moment, he's being incredibly gracious. Yeah, really good thought, y'all. Uh, just the one out of the, I'll just say this one thing to add. The grace moment that got me is just right out of the top is fig trees don't belong in vineyards was the thing that kind of got me. Uh, I think uh, grapes, I would say, belong in vineyards. And so it speaks to uh, being put in a place where you do not belong or do not deserve. Uh, so kind of right there all out of the gate we have one. Uh, so we need to talk about this. Uh, I think this, this idea of the fruitlessness and what it does, um, as expressed on the screen there, the King James Version interprets the end of verse 7. Uh, the question of the owner is, why cumbereth it the ground? And as I studied this text, it seemed like scholar after scholar, commentator after commentator brought up the point, this point that, that, that fruitless trees cause harm. And that might uh, seem uh, like something we wouldn't think. You might think fruitless trees, they don't do any bad, they don't do any good, they just are. But it seems to be saying something this, like this. And so, uh, Ben, I'd like to start with you here. How is it that fruitless trees harm, we can think of, of the kingdom in a large sense, or maybe churches, congregations on a local sense, fruitlessness, how does it harm? Man, uh, one, this is an incredibly self-challenging question uh, to sit back and say, at what points do I catch myself being a fruitless part of a local congregation? Um, to sit there and, and self-process that uh, and look at points in life um, where I can be that individual is very humbling because I think I realize that uh, as I process this, I'm very thankful for the question before this of the grace of God uh, as, as I think about this. Um, I, I can't help but go real almost, almost logical with this, uh, and I, I'm excited for their perspectives on it because I think that it's going to be a, a different perspective than maybe than what I'm coming at it with. But I, I can't help but sit there and think, like, man, if, if I am a member at a local congregation who is consuming resources, or if I'm demanding the time out of, uh, out of and, and once again, I, I hesitate to say certain words, but, like, I'm demanding time out of my shepherds and just consuming their time in an, in an unhealthy way, um, or, and, and it's because of my personal attitude or I'm approaching the kingdom with a fully me-centered attitude and everything I want to do is about me, or I, I, I don't respect um, those in the congregation who are seeking to do good, and I'm constantly ripping those individuals down. To me, when I, I process that, um, that, is, that is dreadful for the overarching work of a church. It can absolutely destroy a congregation. I think about how we have churches all over America who are building massive new church buildings um, and, and they're using so many of the church's resources 
to, to serve members um, who are going to show up once or twice a week for a couple hours. And, and when those individuals show up, they want to complain about everything that's going on at that congregation and complain how they're not served and complain how the church isn't doing this for them or, or complain that, that this individual at the congregation hasn't, uh, hasn't been good to them or whatever it is. Um, and I can't, I, as I sat there and processed that, and maybe I'm going beyond what you asked right here, and if that's the case, stop me and hit me in the face. But uh, if, if I, can't ima- I, can, I can imagine the father walking in to a church building on a Sunday and looking around at a group of individuals and seeing, <laughs> you know, I, I, it, it takes a lot of resources to operate a congregation. Um, and I can't, I can only imagine the father walking in and looking around a room and seeing individuals who have been sitting there without bearing fruit for four years in a congregation and the reaction that the father would have, um, and sit there, especially, and and once again, maybe in America where it's so easy and we can walk in and there's no reason that we should not have be fruit-bearing individuals, but sitting here and watching him walk in and say, okay, there are individuals in this room who haven't had a conversation with a coworker about Jesus in four years, or haven't had a conversation with a, a, a classmate in four years, or whatever it is, and sitting there and saying, why are you consuming the time of this congregation? Why are you tearing down other members of this congregation? And that's a dangerous thing to say, because uh, I say it's a dangerous thing to say. Like, like I once again I started this out by saying it was very humbling for me to sit back and say, "Ooh, I'm an individual who has very often been somebody who can show up consistently Sunday morning after Sunday morning after Sunday morning, and not borne much fruit outside of that." Um, I, I think about. He, I'll let these guys answer, and I'll, I'll add stuff if, but, if they want. You know what, I, what I'm hearing you talk about is the issue of consumerism, yeah. consumerism Christianity versus being a uh, collaborative or contributing Christianity. So, so I'm, I'm sitting here hearing you talk through that, and I'm thinking, you know, if, if I didn't have to pay for Chick-fil-A, they would not let me come there. <laughs> Because I would, I consume so much of it, and I and I'm in that restaurant for so many hours at a time that they 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 would be at a a a loss with my presence if they weren't getting compensated by me for it. And so Chick Fil A can tolerate me because I'm contributing something to my presence, whether rather than just consuming their product. So the, the day that Micah becomes a Chick-fil-A employee, which is, a, which is a mandate in our family, and I start receiving the discounted rate of food because of her employment, that's going to change my relationship with Chick-fil-A forever, and they may not want me around anymore. Because all I will be is draining them and not building them up financially. You see, I don't think we consider the implication of that in the church. If all I am is a consumer Christian, I'm only here to get for you to give me what I need, and then I'm going home. 
then I'm draining the resources of the church, not contributing to them, not helping the church be able to reach lost souls, not helping those who are struggling to overcome. I'm just draining the resource. I'm just consumer. That's what you're talking about. Can I, can I just, I know this is yours to ask questions, but as you were sitting there talking, I couldn't help, but this is, is very candid here. How can we get caught in a trap of sitting there and saying, okay, I can show up and I can be here and I can drain resources, but if I'm giving my share of monetary value, don't I de- do I deserve a consumeristic approach? And that, that's kind of an interesting, I just wanted to respond to your thought process by saying that. Well, you know, when I, financial giving is not the only form of giving that Scripture demands. I think that's, that's the answer. It's just because we put our money in the collection plate, that's not the only form of... Would you say that's fruit-bearing? Is it fruit-bearing? See, we, we, we prep ahead of time so that we don't get put on the spot. Ben, you are sorry. out. Sorry, sorry. Rookie. <laughs> Minku, what do you think? I don't know. But, I mean, let me go f- to yeah, my go. point. Yeah, you, you know. <laughs> what if, you know, I... I I even don't want to say this. I'm, I'm just saying it, you know, hypothetically. Just, just imagine, what if we have more fruitless trees than fruitful trees? It's sad. It's disaster. You know? Do you know what it means? We are almost full of sins in our congregation. Our congregation is almost full of sins because they are not repent. They are repentant. So, like Ben said, you know, elders should take I mean, I mean, take care of that. Take care of the, the sins and the sinners, and they have to focus only on them while they are doing the work. We don't have the opportunity to go out to community to do good work because we have problems. We have sins in us. And we cannot be effective to God if we are not fruitful. So the biggest problem to have unfruitful trees in the vineyard is that, you know, we will not be able to work as God's people. Only thing, the, the first and foremost thing that we have to focus is to, is, is to work for ourselves, you know, until we get to the point that, you know, we are cleaned, we are cleansed. So that's the, I think, most uh, biggest problem if we have unfruitful trees. I want to add something to this because I, I love that direction you took. Um, something we talked about earlier was the vine dresser sitting there begging for an extra year, begging for a year to cultivate, begging for a year of growth. Um, and, and I can't help but as I was processing this, I, I thought about uh, this idea of, okay, are we people who are bearing fruit? And I would imagine that like as a congregation, we know we should be bearing fruit, right? That's a pretty thing. Hey, I could be reaching out to this person. 
the fruit of the Spirit can be active in my life. It's the works, right? We established that based on other points in John. Um, James 4.17, uh, if you know the right thing to do it and don't do it to that person, it's sin. And I couldn't help but sit there and connect it to Hebrews 10.26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In the sense of, okay, if I'm somebody who knows to bear fruit and continuously am not seeking to bear fruit, suddenly that vine dresser is not going to be standing there saying, let me cultivate it for a little bit longer. Let me be the intermediary for a little longer. And I don't know, you guys might disagree with that, but as I was processing this, that was, that was standing out in my mind of, okay, who, who's standing there fighting for the non-fruit-bearing fig tree that was not supposed to be in the vineyard in the first place? It was the one who stands in my place, and if I'm continuously not trying to bear fruit, Hebrews 10.26 says, hey, he might not be uh, standing in your place anymore, and that's a scary thought. And let me address the, what McGreevy threw at me here a minute ago. Your contribution is fruit. Jesus praised the widow, the, the, the widow who brought her two mites for what she gave. For some, the financial contribution might be the only, the only fruit they can contribute, the only part that they can do. But for, for others, it's, it can be a cop-out. It can be, I'm doing this, I've done the bare minimum, I'm good. And if that's your mentality, there might be a disease on your tree you need to consider. Yeah. Um, I'd like to, to give you guys just a, just a minute uh, each to, to discuss this, because I think it's good to have good, grace-filled, encouraging messages on both ends of fruitlessness. And I, I want to encourage everyone here, how can we be like, the, rather than being the one who complains about the fruitless tree over there, you know, how can we encourage them to bear fruit like the vine dresser? How can we do that work of the vine dresser for fruitless trees? Uh, Mingu, do you have a thought about that? Prayer? Mediatory? Is it a word? <laughs> Mediation. You're, you're yes. a preacher, you get to make one up. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Or intermediatory yeah. preaching. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching prayer and, you know, pleading to God, you know, for give us more time, more grace to repent. Things like that. Pleading uh, to God for other people and for us too. I think that is the thing that we can do. Praying for them instead of complaining about them. Yeah. Uh, really good thought. Guys, do you have a thought? Yeah, for me, um, I, I think about how we have a certain, you know, he sits here and says, hey, you have, it's been three years, you have another year, and I'm going to come back. This tells me, hey, if I see a brother or sister who is not bearing fruit, have a conversation with them and, and make it a deliberate one. But here's the thing I wanted to note about this, and I had to talk to myself on this because I, I know who I am and I know I get so angered easily uh, when I am corrected. I think as a church we have to do a better job at sitting there and saying, okay, when I am corrected, or when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I don't feel like you're bearing fruit in this area. Instead of sitting there and going, I can't believe they would say that to me. You're a total jerk and I can't, you know, you're wrong. You, you don't understand my life. You think, you think that uh, you know me, you don't. You don't know where you can say that I'm bearing fruit or where I'm not bearing fruit and what's going on in my life. Instead of having that response, which inherently will drive people away from having that conversation with you, trying to say, hey, your soul's in jeopardy, let me talk to you about it. If I respond poorly, 
no one's going to have that conversation. So I have to be somebody who's willing to sit back and say, hey, if somebody approaches me and says, hey, I don't feel like you're bearing fruit in this area, take a serious look at myself. Um, there are so many times when, uh, Amelia, I'm, I'm so sorry that I'm mentioning you, where she'll be like, hey, you're doing a bad job at this. Not in a mean way, but like, I don't think she's ever said I'm doing a bad job at something. But saying like, you know, this is, this is an area where uh, you've been obnoxious or something like, I'm very annoying. Um, but something like that. And I'll sit there and I'll go, I'm not annoying. I, let me explain myself. That doesn't get me anywhere. And, uh, and that's not healthy for our open communication and our relationship. But for me to sit there as a, as a Christian who could be struggling to not bear fruit, when someone approaches me and says, hey man, I think you're struggling, me being, being humble enough to take a step back and say, self-examination, this is where I'm struggling. That would, that would be my thought on this. And real quick, the one I would say is, maybe we need to do a better job of finding what fruits people are really good at producing and helping mm -hmm. to encourage that fruit to be produced. I remember when, uh, when Ben started here, for the first 18 months or so, uh, our, our outreach consisted solely of door knocks. And there were some people who, who that just wasn't going to be their, their way to reach out. And then uh, we got together and worked on developing this go and do thing. And now we have this plethora of different ways to do outreach. And, and so we're finding ways for people who, who can engage in outreach with the fruits that they're good at producing rather than trying to pigeonhole them into only one type of fruit. So I think maybe it would be wise on our part to always be looking for for what fruit they are good at producing and don't make it an apple tree produce an orange. You know, let's think of it in those terms. Uh, thanks guys for the, the discussion tonight and we want to make sure we impress upon each of you that our God is a patient God and today is the day of salvation and, and so if you have need to repent or uh, to believe in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, we won't have an invitation song tonight. The invitation is open, and we will be here uh, tonight. If we can serve you in any way with regard to that. Let's, let's close with prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Uh, our Father, it's so, so clear uh, from the teaching of your Son that you are gracious and loving and patient. And, Father, that we sin and need your forgiveness. Uh, we pray that, Father, we will open our hearts and our minds to allow your Son to do his work so that we may bear fruit. Uh, Father, help us to be gentle, loving encouragers of each other when we're experiencing seasons of fruitlessness. Uh, may we all search inwardly and see ways in which we can turn a little more closer to you and beholding your glory. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you tonight, to study these words from your son. And it's in his name we pray.